0: So welcome to this evening's LSE and Confucius Institute public lecture by Howard Davis on China and financial reform. Now for those of you for whom this is the first time you have set eyes on our speaker, Howard Davis, director of the LSE, formerly chairman of the Financial Services Authority, you might right now be mentally comparing the man that you see to my right with the Howard Davis character in David Harris' new play on the 2008 global financial crisis, The Power of Yes, which opened in London at the National Theatre last week. So if you are thinking about that, you might now be remembering, among others, Tracy Corrigan, who wrote in the Daily Telegraph and described how, as she was watching the play on opening night, she couldn't quite focus because, she says, Howard Davis, the real Howard Davis, was sitting in the row in front of me, (laughs) watching himself on stage swear, lose his temper, and defend his record by insisting that the crisis didn't happen on his watch. Corrigan goes on to say how she was torn between watching the real or the phony Howard Davis. And her eyes were then drawn to the genuine one, although someone's head kept getting in the way. So this evening, we have the real Howard Davis, obviously. And while I will chair this evening's lecture, I promise not to let my head get in the way of your viewing pleasure. <laughs> and in return, the real Howard promises he won't be as foul-mouthed as his onstage character. Now, Howard Davis has been director of the LSE since 2003. This evening is the fifth of a series of annual lectures he he has delivered at the LSE on the reform of China's financial system. As you must already know from the blurb that accompanies this lecture, Howard is remarkably well-placed to do a lecture on this topic. He is, after all, on the International Advisory Councils of both China Banking Regulatory Commission and China Securities Regulatory Commission. But more than that, of course, Because before becoming LSE's director, Howard has been, among other things, founder and then executive chairman of the Financial Services Authority, deputy governor of the Bank of England, and director general of the Conference of British Industry. Not all at the same time, obviously. Or actually, perhaps not so obviously, because you must all realize that he keeps a full diary. After all, while being a full-on, full-time director at the LSE, Howard has also written numerous articles and published two books, constantly traveled the world to deliver public lectures, appeared on numerous international discussion panels, and engaged face-to-face with our foreign, corporate, and alumni friends of the LSE. Here in London, he is constantly on the radio and on TV, instructing the British public on... Well, on sensible thinking in public life. Here at the LSE in the evenings, you will see Howard participate in all manner of LSE student initiated activity, evening drama, auctions, musical performances, besides regularly attending and chairing many of LSE's public lectures. Indeed, outside of Houghton Street, Howard is a trustee of the Tate and a member of the governing body of the Royal Academy of Music. Now in the midst of all this, in late 2006, Howard decided that his days weren't quite full enough. And so he agreed that November to chair the judging panel for the 2007 Man Booker Prize for Fiction. And in the course of the ensuing six months, he read over 110 books. With all this going on, Howard still finds time officially to advise numerous international financial institutions based in the US, the Far East, and elsewhere on global economic and regulatory conditions. Now, the topic of tonight's lecture, China's financial system, here perhaps Howard has finally encountered a project that is suitably large and pushing back. So in facing China and its financial system, he now stares into the world's largest fastest-growing economy, an economy that in the last three decades has already lifted out of poverty, double the population of the United States, an economy that, while its people have, on average, only 1 the per capita income of the US, already contributes nearly as much to world economic growth as does the US in normal times, and in current recessionary times, historically, double what the United States has done. When I was applying to go to university myself, after I'd been roundly turned down by the LSE, (laughs) I had to go instead to a small university in the Northeast United States. And while I was there, I learned the unofficial university motto, Princeton in the nation's service. After coming to the LSE, however, I've learned that the internationalism of LSE's interests and of the cosmopolitanism of LSE student body, rightly pushes us all to go beyond narrow provincialism and instead to seek to better the lot of global society as a whole. These annual lectures on the reform of China's financial system that Howard delivers to the community concerns the work that he's doing to improve the financial conditions in China. And this work represents exactly the best of those LSE ideals, to understand the causes of things and to improve the state of global humanity. So ladies and gentlemen, the real Howard Davis.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, uh, Danny. The really irritating thing from my point of view about, uh, the play at the National at the moment is that the actor portraying me is, um, how can I put this politely, Uh, well he's fat. Um, (laughs) And my wife who came with me on the opening night said, you know, all those hours in the gym completely wasted because now everyone who goes thinks, you know, Howard Davis is actually a rather porky sort of character. Uh, running to see. So I'm rather, and these days people are not serious about their art. You know, I thought that if you acted in a play about a real person, you should seek to resemble them. But has this, has this man been on a treadmill? He certainly has not. Um, so that's the unfortunate thing. But uh, tonight, um, it's finance in China and not the financial crisis, though of course, China has been affected by the financial crisis, though not quite in the way people feared originally. As Danny says, this is the fifth time I have reported, if you like, from the work that I do in China, and I thought when I agreed to do these advisory roles that I should show some idea of what went on and what is happening in China to the broader LSE uh, community. Now, my last visit there was actually in uh, the end of June with the uh, China Banking Regulatory uh, Commission. Um, And it's probably fair to say that over the last 12 months, there has been less in the way of significant reforms than in the previous four or five years. And that's not surprising, because clearly in China, as elsewhere, managing through the crisis has been the focus of public policy over the last 12 months. So quite a bit of what I say this evening will be looking at how China has been affected by the crisis, both its economy, first of all, um, and then its (coughs) financial sector, uh, and slightly less about the details of financial reform over the last 12 months, because it is fair to say uh, that there has been less. So what I'd first like to do is just a reprise where I ended last time. And what I said last time about this time was I concluded that the crisis would cause a slowdown in the Chinese economy, particularly through a slowdown in Chinese exports, that it was likely to cut foreign capital imports. I speculated that it would, however, have only a modest Impact on Chinese banks unless asset prices weakened a lot more than they looked as if they were going to weaken. But that it had raised serious doubts in China about the future direction of financial reform. And at a meeting I'd had with Wang Qishan uh, last summer, the summer of 2008, uh, he had said, Well, he said, I have been listening years to the lessons from my Wall Street teachers, but my Wall Street teachers didn't seem to know what they were talking about, uh, because now I look at the wreckage of the U.S. and U.K. financial system, and I have to ask myself uh, whether our endeavors to move our financial system more in that direction uh, were, in fact, misconceived. So that's where I ended last year, with uh, China beginning on... A period of slightly slower growth and questioning uh, itself about the direction of reform. Now, what's happened since? Well, all the brick, and I've added the second eye for Indonesia and here, economies um, have slowed down. Uh, Some of them, of course, very uh, dramatically indeed. The biggest swing being uh, Russia, but also uh, South Africa and Brazil have slowed sharply. And China has slowed but, of course, nothing like as much um, as many of the others. Um, and, uh, in fact, many feared that Chinese economic growth, which had slipped to uh, only an annual rate of about 6% at the beginning of 2009, would slip further. And, as many of you know, the Chinese authorities in particular see a growth rate of 6 or 7% as absolutely crucial in order to maintain at least stable employment and it looked as if it was possible that China would move into a position where unemployment would begin to rise. So why did this pick up? Well uh, I think we have to say that it was in very large part a large fiscal stimulus which helped to offset declining overseas demand and over the period uh, 9 10 the Chinese fiscal stimulus is estimated at around 3% of GDP. The total announced package was indeed uh, somewhat more than that, but over this financial year, uh, the estimate is that it will have had an impact of about 3% of GDP. Uh, This was possible and uh, hardly imprudent because of China's very strong fiscal position. Of course, it's very strong foreign currency reserves as well, but a strong fiscal position domestically. Uh, So whereas uh, in the UK our government has struggled to implement a fiscal stimulus approaching 1% of GDP and even then that looks fairly imprudent given our borrowing position, China clearly had the flexibility to undertake a significant fiscal stimulus. Whether it's undertaken that fiscal stimulus in the optimal way is a more moot point and we'll come on to look at how the fiscal stimulus has been implemented uh, in a moment. But undoubtedly this has had a big impact on growth. And as a result, China really remains uh, quite a strong and stable performer among these large developing economies. So by comparison with uh, India, of course, has done reasonably well. India's growth rate uh, slipped a bit, but its inflation has been slightly higher and its unemployment rate higher. But the others um, have suffered much more uh, than China has. So China has remained quite a stable economy by comparison with other large developing economies and with very high uh, competitiveness. I mean, this is a competitiveness survey based on the World Economic Forum uh, data, and I'm always rather nervous about presenting figures on national competitiveness. Paul Krugman once said, uh, rather wittily, that competitiveness applied to nations Uh, was something which had moved from academic jargon to popular cliché without passing through the intermediate stage of meaning. Um, And undoubtedly, one has to be a bit sceptical about what this means, but certainly on international surveys of China as a place to do business, China as a place to invest, the perceptions that foreign firms have, uh, China has remained uh, very uh, competitive. So um, what One thing we may uh, conclude from this, and here I am going to quote a source of impeccable authority, Um, absolutely the best source you can imagine, uh, in the form of one Qua Di, from uh, his uh, recent piece that uh, he has written, that the center of gravity uh, of the world's economic growth has drifted eastwards. Um, although this is a paper that Danny published only this year, uh, like many economists, of course, he's quite out of date, um, and the latest uh, figure he has in this is from uh, 2003. But actually, uh, these figures on uh, economic center of gravity, it's an amusing concept, really. It's a kind of least squares um, approach where you take uh, the place in the world um, which is closest to the major centers of um, economic uh, activity. Now, Danny, unfortunately, whilst a brilliant economist, uh, is a shaky geographer. Um, And if you look at these cities, they are positioned rather curiously uh, in relation to each other. Uh, So um, London, of course, this is another thing about Danny. Danny is a boy brought up in the British Empire. brought up in Malaysia and born when Malaysia was still comfortably in the bosom of the British Empire and so he naturally puts London at the centre of the world (laughs) um, on the equivalent of the Greenwich uh, Meridian Uh, but you might wonder where this world centre of economic uh, gravity actually is because you wouldn't really quite uh, guess it and in fact uh, this is actually a paper not from Danny Clark Uh, but from uh, some researchers at uh, Asher say in Paris, uh, that actually the world's economic, center of economic growth has moved from Iceland in 1975 to somewhere around Spitsbergen uh, in 2004. Now, I don't know if anybody here has been to Spitsbergen, certainly I haven't, but it doesn't strike you as being necessarily... The most exciting economic place uh, in the world. But uh, essentially, um, what this has shown is that the pull of economic activity in China is pulling the centre of gravity. Um, The the world's geographic centre of gravity is in Russia, rather oddly. Um, But the world's economic centre of gravity has moved. And one thing that the uh, French researchers have done is to say, well, Um, Why is this happening? Which cities are actually exerting this force and which cities are moving away? And in fact, the gainers, the top 15 cities um, who are getting closer to the world's center of economic gravity, uh, 14 of them um, are from China. Is there anybody here from (laughs) Chichiha? Anybody here from Hohot? No? Anybody here from Daqing? Baotou? Beijing, must be somebody from Beijing. Yes, thank you. <laughs> well, anyway, it's rather curious. I, these are rather odd calculations, but I just throw them up for some amusement. But this is uh, the, the cities that are moving closest uh, to the centre of the world's economic gravity. Uh, and who's the losers? Well, Dublin uh, is the world's <laughs> biggest <laughs> loser. Um, but unfortunately, my own hometown of Manchester um, is also... Uh, a big reason. This this is just uh, a bit of fun and reminds me of the old Irish joke, if you wanted to be in the centre of the world you wouldn't start from Dublin. Um, (laughs) But uh, what this shows is that actually the world's centre of economic gravity has been moving east and I suspect that when the calculations are done over this period of the last two or three years, uh, that centre will have moved even more sharply uh, because it's pretty clear that China has not been anything like as badly affected by this recession as the US or Europe uh, have been. Now, what about the component of the impact? Well, export growth, as I suggested last year, I thought exports would actually fall, and they did not, though it's fair to say that export growth did level off. Exports did not fall in um, absolute Terms and what you can see is that both imports and exports, uh, the growth rate declined quite significantly over the last uh, two years. So, the impact of export of trade on economic growth in China was lesser, um, which uh, suggests that something else must have taken the strain, although I think probably not enough. Um, In fact, however. Uh, The Economist, rather interestingly, the other day um, produced some figures that I hadn't seen before uh, which suggested that we might be somewhat sceptical about these figures which are the Chinese reported figures um, and that if you look at China's global trade surplus as reported by itself um, or as reported by its trading partners you see a remarkably different picture. So if you look on the left-hand side China is the darker blue lines And these are the surpluses that the Chinese are reporting with their major trading partners. But if you add up the deficits that those trading partners are themselves reporting with China, you get the lighter lines. In other words, you get deficits that are twice as large as the surplus the Chinese are reporting, which suggests that Chinese figures are significantly um, understating the surplus that they have. And if you look on the right-hand side of the trade surplus with the US, the top line is China's trade surplus with the US as reported by the US um, of just over uh, $250 billion. As reported by China, it's just over $150 billion. The middle dotted line is China including Hong Kong re-exports. So we might be somewhat skeptical about these numbers as reported in China, but it's pretty clear that the growth has slowed and the surplus, the trade surplus with the US, has fallen on everybody's measure. We may be skeptical about precisely how much it's fallen or precisely what the level is. And this is uh, something that's happened, of course, with the other major surplus countries. It's often forgotten when people talk about the global imbalances story uh, that some of these imbalances are very large elsewhere as well, and that Germany um, has had a very large current account surplus. Um, And all the major ones, China, Germany, and Japan, have fallen quite sharply between the second half of 2008 and the first half of 2009. In fact, the Japanese and the Germans have fallen by much more than China's. China's trade surplus has fallen by about uh, 30%. Is this good news? Well, generally, um, we would say yes in that part of the story which lies behind the financial crisis has been of huge global imbalances fueling a, a savings glut if you like providing cheap money in borrowing countries which bid up uh, and the price of risky assets and bid the yield down on risky assets generated risk mispricing on a massive scale which was part of the build up to the collapse in the end of 2007. Uh, So we wanted uh, these imbalances to adjust somewhat uh, but in fact uh, there is not a great deal of impact and I think that this decline in China's trade surplus has occurred mainly because the US is squeezing imports uh, and because uh, of a poor fiscal position in the US um, and also poor consumer confidence in the US and it's incurred more on the U.S. side than because China has been raising uh, consumption. And indeed, to fill the gap created by declining U.S. consumption, um, China's surplus of 300 billion, or say so with the U.S., uh, would have to be a $450 billion deficit in order to compensate uh, for the uh, reduction in consumption in the U.S. So essentially, we've seen really quite a modest. Reversal of these global um, imbalances. And if you look at uh, consumption in China, China is still very, very low as a consumption share of GDP. Um, these are uh, McKinsey figures which show China um, as only 37% of GDP in private consumption uh, compared to 67% in the UK and over 70% uh, in the US. And there's very little sign so far of this rising in any significant way. Now, we know many of the reasons for this, and McKinsey have produced, I think, quite a useful piece of analysis which shows the way in which China's growth model in fact pushes down the consumption share of GDP. If you start really in the top right-hand corner, you have a trade surplus generating capital inflows and a monetary expansion. You have a government policy Uh, which tends to hold down the exchange rate and bias in favor um, of exports. The profitability of export markets um, reduces the focus on domestic products. Um, You have a limited safety net um, and limited worker protection which causes Chinese consumers to want to save more because the combination of the move from the country into the cities and therefore the reduction of the informal safety net and the lack of much in the way of pension provision means that people have a strong incentive uh, to save. Um, There's low uh, returns on financial assets and limited access to credit uh, which makes uh, consumption again uh, somewhat more difficult and strong investment focused policies uh, and incentives. So this biases the Chinese economy into a strong export-driven and investment-driven economy and low domestic uh, consumption. And frankly it's difficult to say that in spite of the changes generated by the crisis that much has happened to alter that model. So whilst the imbalances have fallen somewhat, the trade surplus declined a little bit, there's not much evidence of a significant rebalancing in the Chinese economy. And This, I think, is slightly mixed news for the future. Now, moving to the financial sector, more specifically having looked at what has been happening in the Chinese economy over the last couple of years, um, if you look at the financial sector, China's financial markets are small by developed market standards, uh, but large by emerging market standards. Uh, What this shows is um, the percentage of financial assets, as a a percentage of GDP. I mean, this is a very straightforward calculation of the bank deposits and the value of stocks and bonds as a percentage of GDP. And before anyone says, of course, the value of stocks and bonds, particularly of equities, goes up and down. So this is a snapshot taking a particular point of time. But roughly it shows that China um, has about half the financial assets in relation to GDP uh, of the U.S., The UK, uh, which uh, we used to be quite proud to be top of this measure, we're not quite so sure whether it was such a good idea uh, to be uh, quite so large in terms of financial markets. But China is actually well-developed in a financial market sense uh, in relation to both India and particularly in relation to Russia. But what you notice about... uh, And indeed, if you look at this on a broader comparison and you look at... GDP per capita, which is on the bottom uh, axis, and financial debt, um, which is the measure I've just described, and the value of bank deposits, bonds, and equities, a percentage of GDP, uh, you can see that, in fact, in relation to its wealth, China uh, has a rather deep financial sector, so more like South Africa um, than it is like uh, Indonesia or, indeed, the Ukraine or Brazil. And so, in fact, there is a sort of line you can draw through that, and China is well above it. So China's financial markets are, in fact, quite deep and, in many respects, quite sophisticated. And I think that's an important point to note. But the main characteristic of China's markets, which is quite significant when you're looking at reform and at the impact of financial policy, is that China is very heavily Dependent on bank intermediation um, by comparison with other countries. I and mean, this shows, again, a rather straightforward breakdown where the dark bars at the bottom are bank deposits, the next ones are government debt, uh, above that private debt, uh, and above that equities. And these are uh, trillions of dollars uh, at the top. <clears throat> and if you compare... China uh, even with India or with other emerging asia for example China 58% of all financial assets in China are bank deposits uh, which is only 36% in the other countries of emerging asia which would be uh, Thailand Hong Kong Singapore etc and really larger than uh, anywhere else even larger than eastern europe uh, or russia and indeed over the last few years, China has been trying quite hard uh, to develop its bond and equity markets because, I guess, a rather simple point is that as a country grows in sophistication, I mean, typically, it makes sense to have a broader and more diversified financial system. Uh, It Typically, um, the process of intermediation and indeed of credit assessment is improved if you have more bond markets, uh, particularly when you have rating agencies, etc. So you have other ways of assessing creditworthiness of borrowers, and to have that all done through the banking system puts a rather heavy burden on banks, as well as, of course, a risk diversification point. But China has, in fact, made relatively little headway in broadening its financial markets. The story really has been about improving the quality of the banking system, which undoubtedly has been done, and we'll come on to Look at some figures which show that. Uh, but progress in developing bond and equity markets has been much more difficult to achieve. That, of course, is related to legal problems and problems, particularly of property rights, uh, which are still relatively undeveloped in China. And that's much more s- essential to develop an equity market or a bond market uh, than it is within the banking system. So if you look at China's position in the world financial markets, uh, whilst Chinese banking assets are now over 9% uh, of total world banking assets, uh, Chinese bonds are only uh, under 2.5% of the world bond market, and equities under 6% uh, of world equity markets. And so, this strategic objective, um, which has been a clear objective of the government for some time, is proving really quite difficult to achieve. Um, and I think that is one of the big problems that the Chinese face in the next few years in pursuing the next phase of financial reform, is it's one thing to clean up your banks, which they have to quite uh, an important degree done, uh, but stimulating uh, bond and equity markets is proving much more tricky. Now, over the last year or so, in the crisis, Everybody has seen the value of financial assets fall, and the largest declines in financial assets in emerging markets have, of course, been in China, to a lesser extent, uh, Russia and India. Uh, and, indeed, total uh, financial assets have fallen by about 15% in emerging markets uh, from 07 to 08, and I think we can expect that fall uh, to have continued in 09. So we have seen a contraction, an absolute contraction, um, in the financial sector uh, during that period, which is perhaps not totally surprising. But bank assets um, in China have continued to grow. And these figures are from the uh, CBRC annual report and show total assets and liabilities of uh, the banks. um, And they're now at just over uh, 60 trillion RMB. Uh, which is a lot and as you can see uh, financial assets, the banking assets have been growing really quite rapidly over the last six years, Uh, more rapidly in fact than stocks and bonds so that we now have a position where uh, three of the world's top dozen banks um, by capital size are Chinese, Uh, this is not by assets Uh, the the picture is not that different this is by uh, tier one capital Uh, which has been an increasingly important measure uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, The league tables tended to focus on banks by size of assets, and of course uh, that would put Royal Bank of Scotland uh, top, Uh, but that's not uh, top of any league anyone really wants to be top of at the moment. Um, So it's probably more interesting to look at strength, capital strength, but even on capital strength, the Chinese have uh, three of the top 12, and I think that this is likely this uh, dominance of Chinese banks is likely to grow because if you look at some of the ones at the top of this uh, you, know, you can only forecast that Citigroup uh, will retrench and uh, Royal drawback of Scotland uh, certainly will uh, over the next year or two. So we're in a position where the Chinese banks are growing still rapidly and indeed by international standards are now very large and where their capital adequacy has in fact improved quite significantly What this shows uh, is the CBRC's own calculations, but now that most of these big banks have international shareholdings and they do publish accounts to international accounting standards, I think these figures are reasonably good. Of course, one can argue about the provisioning rules that Chinese banks use. Uh, Probably uh, they understate non-performing loans They're probably not quite as rigorous as uh, Western banks would be. Uh, But these figures, I think, are fairly reasonable. And what they show is the number of banks that are meeting the capital adequacy requirements set by the CBRC. but they are set broadly in line with the Basel international capital requirements. Um, And as you can see, in 2003, practically none of the Chinese banking system was meeting international capital standards. At that time, uh, most of the Chinese banks were bust by Western standards. I mean, they did not have capital that would allow them to operate internationally in line with Basel capital standards. Um, And the big triumph, I think, of the CBRC uh, over the last six years has been to push the banks up to meeting international standards. Now, how has that been done? Well, there's no great magic to it. I mean, one thing, of course, has been very rapid growth. Economic growth is very helpful uh, from a bank's balance sheet point of view. <clears throat> but another um, has been large capital injections by uh, central government. The central government has injected, well, probably 25 to $30 billion of new capital into these banks. And at the same time, has taken a lot of non-performing loans off the banks' balance sheets and put them into asset management companies in other words essentially workout uh, operations bad banks the chinese have created several bad banks and put um, the bad assets from the existing commercial banks into those banks uh, was this sensible well i think broadly speaking it was because the position <coughs> that the cbrc when it was formed inherited was a position in which the banks had all been essentially part of the people's bank empire, and what were called commercial banks had essentially been used as development funding channels. I mean, they had not been making straightforward commercial decisions on credit. They had been channeling credit to areas of perceived economic need, and indeed, most of the lending was done on a geographical quota basis, so there was a certain amount that the China Construction Bank would lend uh, in Shenzhen, and that was set uh, centrally. Uh, and you know whether if there were projects, if there were better projects in Shanghai than Shenzhen, that didn't matter because Shang-Chen, Shenzhen had its lending quota and Shanghai had its lending quota. So these were not commercial entities in the normal sense. Now they are closer to that. It's not correct to say I think that they are fully. Um, commercial and indeed uh, when I talk a bit about how the fiscal stimulus has been deployed, it has been deployed to quite a large extent through the banking system once again on a top down assessment of where credit was needed in order to create infrastructure projects and in order to create investment and job opportunities. So unfortunately I think China has gone back to some degree to directed lending Uh, but nonetheless the position I would say is better than it was before. And the fact that some of these banks have been quoted on stock exchanges and sold to international investors does impose a helpful constraint (coughs) on the extent to which commercial banks in China can be used for purely political lending purposes. So I I don't want to be starry-eyed about this. I think this, this picture does somewhat overstate the improvement. But I think the trend has been in the right direction. And the non performing loan problem, um, which we used to talk about extensively, um, has fallen very sharply. And the share of uh, non performing loans, um, which is the, the dotted line, is the NPL ratio, um, and the balance of NPL, so the bars, is the absolute uh, amounts, has fallen sharply. Now, my speculation, uh, unfortunately, is that this trend is unlikely to be sustained uh, for the next year or two uh, because of what has been happening during this period of the authorities pumping money into the economy uh, in order to generate that little uptick in growth that I showed you earlier on. And what's been actually happening over the last 12 months has been that loan growth has been uh, extremely um, I mean, this shows cumulative loans and loan issuance on a monthly basis and shows that uh, the volume of bank lending just rocketed um, from October 2008 um, when the government, after the layman's meltdown, announced its huge fiscal stimulus. And a lot of this fiscal stimulus was pushed through the banks in the form of lending lending, through the big commercial banks to state owned enterprises or to local governments for infrastructure projects. And this has been a rather worrying uh, development. Why was it done this way? Well, I think the honest answer is because it could be done this way um, and because it probably couldn't be done any other way. I mean, the volume of fiscal stimulus that the Chinese envisaged in order to respond to what they perceived to be potentially a real crisis at the end of 2008 was that the simplest way of getting money out there and of getting projects going um, was to turn on the tap through the banks. Um, And that is what has actually happened. Now, you'll see uh, near the end uh, that there has been a little bit of a uh, tick downwards, um, and uh, I think that that is reflects the view that the authorities have begun to take uh, that this may possibly have gone uh, too far. Indeed, uh, the Chinese government has created huge quantities uh, of credit, and that lending is leading to unsustainable asset price inflation, while wasteful investment is producing huge amounts of excess capacity. And so there are people who argue, and the economist. Uh, editorial of uh, this week's Economist said, as a result, China's stimulus will inevitably be followed by a bust down the road. Well, is that uh, the case, that's the, as it were, case for the prosecution, that what essentially China has done has been to offset the impact of the recession on its exports by a huge domestic stimulus, but run through the banks pushing out money um, in an unsustainable way? And it's certainly true uh, that uh, that has happened. Um, And the PBOC removed the lending quotas that it um, had imposed on the banks, uh, reduced reserve requirements, uh, the reserves that the banks have to hold uh, in the central bank, and, and lowered the interest rates. As you know, interest rates in China are still very heavily administered. I mean, there is a straightforward lending rate, but also... Margins which banks can charge on lending are still quite heavily controlled. So they don't just control, as we would hear, the lending rate between the central bank and the banks, but they also control the lending rate between the banks and their customers. Um, And the spreads are very uh, (coughs) tightly defined. And most of this new lending uh, has been to uh, state owned enterprises and to government bodies. for infrastructure projects. So is this a bubble, as the economist would argue? And I think this is a sort of big question, if you like, about financial reform in China, is has financial reform in China actually gone backwards over the last year through the way in which the fiscal stimulus has been implemented? Now let's look at uh, some of this, uh, because I'm not sure I quite share the economist view but let's see, I'll try and present you some numbers and you can make up your own minds if you look at uh, the mortgage market, well it's certainly true that mortgage lending um, is uh, on the rise, Uh, these are some quite interesting um, survey data that uh, McKinsey have produced which look at the way in which um, people have financed house purchase in China and the right hand side shows that the proportion financing by mortgages has been rising really quite sharply. And if you ask people in future um, what they expect, you can see the bottom left-hand chart that the intended means of financing future purchases, mortgages, are now much greater than they were in the past because the survey of existing homeowners suggests that only 23% had financed by mortgage with 56% by savings. That proportion is reversed uh, for the future. So there's no doubt that mortgage financing is growing quite uh, sharply. But so far, uh, on average, the loan-to-value rate of Chinese mortgages is only 46% compared to 76% uh, in the US, uh, and in some cases, about 106% in the UK. Um, There is a minimum deposit uh, of uh, 20%. Uh, which is much larger than would be typical in the UK and the US. And indeed for people buying for speculative purposes, in other words, buying not to live in the property, um, the minimum deposit is supposed to be 40%. It's the case that property prices are up, about 80% in Um. the last year, but from quite a low base. Prices in Shanghai are rising sharply, Uh, New flat prices in Shanghai are up 30% over the last year. But overall, property prices in China are only up uh, 2% in the last year. So um, whilst it looks as if there may be some localised bubbles developing in Shanghai, and uh, how many people from Shanghai here? Do you own a flat? Yes, well done. So you've done very well over the last year. 30% up, so he's buying the drinks afterwards. It's the guy with a purple, uh, purple tie. Um, but this seems to be a localised uh, bubble just in one or two coastal cities, not a generalised bubble all the way across uh, the country. So I'm not uh, sure um, that the... Uh, position is quite as bad on the housing front um, as the economist would tend to argue. But I think these figures are ones which the Chinese authorities are going to want to look at very, very carefully, because it's very clear that consumer intentions have changed really quite sharply, um, and consumer intentions about credit um, have altered. Now, you might say this is quite good news from the point of view of the consumption society in China, because as I showed earlier, one of the obstacles to greater consumption in China domestically has been um, availability of credit being relatively weak. And people now perceive that credit will be available to them to, in the future and will be prepared to, uh, to borrow. Uh, so um, uh, we have a sample of one here. Was your flat bought with a mortgage? <laughs> no. Yes, there you are. Well, so things are looking up. A sample of one we have... Um, that, um, <laughs> so moving away from the, uh, the housing market though, uh, just one or two other things to say about the Chinese banking uh, system before I come on to the equity and bond markets uh, is that uh, the system is still quite uh, protected, I mean the Chinese have talked extensively about um, reform and about opening up uh, but actually um, if you look at the Um, measures of openness um, of national banking markets. And this is work done uh, by the OECD, um, which measures the ease of entry into the banking market, the ease of getting uh, regulatory approvals, the ease of opening branches, the ease of bringing in new capital, the relationship between the rules applying to foreign institutions and to domestic institutions. Uh, and produce an index of openness and closedness, if you like, of a, bank, uh, of a banking market. They still show uh, that China um, is a very difficult market to enter, and the Chinese banks are still very heavily protected. Now, to some extent, of course, that can be a political choice. Uh, but I think if you have a high degree of protection around your banking system, you know that you have to be worried um, about its. Lending standards, uh, its efficiency, its productivity, etc. And China is still as difficult a market to get into as Russia, uh, and is really, uh, with the exception of a few completely closed markets like Korea, North Korea, and Cuba, and places like Venezuela now, um, it, it is very, very closed. And although the uh, foreign banks have been making some progress. Um, This is a Deutsche Bank figure which suggests that uh, the foreign banks now have about uh, 2% of assets in China. In fact, uh, there's some reason to believe that this will have fallen uh, in 2008. And the foreign bank presence in the renminbi market is still very small indeed. Uh, I mean, they've only been allowed to get into renminbi business very very recently. Uh, So although it looks as if the market, you know, the quality of Chinese banks has been uh, improving. Uh, it's still a very protected market. Very recently, and I think this is quite interesting because the Chinese have done this in the middle of the crisis, uh, they have improved and liberalised the environment for foreign banks. And they've, uh, foreign banks have been allowed to underwrite and trade renminbi bonds for the first time. They've been authorised to issue debit cards, which they weren't allowed to do Uh, Before and indeed permitted to invest in consumer finance companies. So I think one thing that's quite interesting is that um, in the middle of this crisis, the Chinese have continued to move in these modest but nonetheless significant ways uh, to open up the banking market. I'll come on right at the end to say uh, what more needs to be done and what foreign banks' perceptions of the Chinese banking system is. But before I do that, let's just say a little bit about the Uh, bond market and the equity markets, because as I pointed out earlier, they are the parts of the financial sector in China which are relatively underdeveloped. The bond market has been growing. This is total annual issuance of bonds in trillions of RMB on the left-hand axis and as a percentage of GDP uh, on the right. And uh, as you can see, it was growing until 2007 but actually fell back um, in 2008 and has probably fallen back further uh, this year. And still as we saw, it's a relatively undeveloped market partly uh, because of the lack of availability of uh, derivatives I mean, the index uh, interest rate uh, futures and options market is uh, very little developed and broadly closed in China. Um, the Chinese have been thinking about um, opening it up for some time uh, but of course the problems uh, in the derivatives markets in the West in the last two years have not encouraged them to accelerate that process. Uh, so the bond market, uh, though growing, is still not huge and indeed, importantly, uh, it's been public sector issuance that has dominated the bond markets that there has been. And indeed, um, you know, most of uh, the issuance has been done either straightforwardly by the People's Bank uh, of China or indeed by the uh, Chinese uh, treasury. So this is really not a very flourishing market for ordinary Chinese companies. Uh, and one of the great difficulties of course in establishing a bond market is if you really want an interesting bond market you have to have a bond market with derivatives which look you know, difficult politically to introduce now and you have to have a bond market with different views on credit because, and, and ratings. And if most of your borrowers are actually ultimately state-backed, then you don't get a very interesting market uh, because the whole uh, credit assessment dimension, the rating dimension, doesn't really exist. In order to generate that, you have to deliberately issue unguaranteed bonds. Unguaranteed bonds, of course, will go uh, for a lower price and a higher yield than guaranteed bonds. So starting off the market looks to be almost counterintuitive then why would you deliberately issue an unguaranteed bond at a higher yield than if, if you had the alternative of issuing a guaranteed bond? So for any state-owned or partially state-owned enterprise, the rational thing is to carry on issuing guaranteed. But of course, if you keep on issuing guaranteed, mm. then you simply won't develop uh, a flexible bond market. So this is quite an important uh, policy choice that uh, that China has. Looking briefly at the stock market, well, uh, the stock markets have been a pretty roller coaster ride uh, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, and there are people who say, well, uh, we've now got another bubble um, inflating in the last few months. And this is, again, part of the economist um, argument that we have a, not only we have a house price bubble, which I say I personally think is overstated, but we also have an equity uh, bubble. But uh, in my view, that is difficult to uh, sustain at the moment because, in fact, the PE of the Shanghai and Shenzhen markets uh, is still at about 24 or 25 times at the moment, and that's below the long-run average uh, of 37 times. Now, you know, 37 times long-run average PE, you might say, is pretty racy, but in an economy growing at 10% a year, you can understand why that might be so. And at the moment, I mean, the peak PE um, in 2007 uh, of the whole market was 70. Uh, And, I mean, that, I think, uh, was fairly easy to see uh, was a rather frothy market. But it doesn't seem to me that we have yet got back into anything like that uh, territory. So I don't think you can yet see that this boost in lending has delivered an equity market bubble. And corporate profits are up about 7% year on year, so there is some underpinning uh, for this somewhat greater optimism, and I think it's arguable that the market sold off too extensively uh, in 2008. In fact, I personally find it much easier to explain prices in Shanghai and Shenzhen at the moment than I do to explain prices in London. On the insurance markets, finally. Well, interestingly, um, the Chinese insurance market has been opening up more. This is the same um, index uh, that I showed you for the banking sector constructed by the OECD, where, if you recall, uh, the banking index of openness was 0.5, i.e., rather more closed. And the Chinese, in fact, uh, have been rather more liberal in opening up the insurance market. And there are quite a lot of joint ventures, By UK, US and continental European insurers with Chinese partners that are developing that market and I think that reflects uh, the perception the Chinese had that they really lacked the underwriting skills that were needed in order to develop a prosperous insurance market and that therefore there was much more of a sort of technology gap, I mean insurance had really not existed um, in, in China until the 90s uh, and therefore you know, they were starting on a totally greenfield site and decided that partnership approach uh, was rather better. So the insurance market has been uh, opening up quite well. How do people now perceive China in terms of its, uh, the vitality of its financial sector? Well, this is an area which is a bit difficult to measure but there are a series of league tables for this kind of thing um, and This uh, is the one that was published uh, just uh, actually week before last, uh, which is published by the City of London Corporation, actually, and therefore maybe it's not surprising that London's at the top. Uh, But it's actually done (laughs) by an independent uh, consultancy and is done on the basis of a large uh, survey of financial firms. And curiously, you see that Shenzhen is actually the fifth um, global financial centre on this ranking, which many Chinese find is slightly... Curious, and this appears to be because of the weighting in the sample towards Asian firms. Shenzhen is not a great centre for Western firms, but it is quite a good, a big centre for Hong Kong and uh, Singapore, and Taiwanese firms, etc. But the two fastest risers in this lead table, if you look at the change in rank, uh, is the figure in the right-hand column. Uh, the two fastest risers are uh, Shanghai and uh, Beijing. And In my office yesterday, I had the president of Fudan University from Shanghai, who said he thought this was totally understandable, and the only thing he couldn't understand about this table was why Shanghai was below Shenzhen, Um, (laughs) and this afternoon, I I had one of the chief investment officers from the CIC in Beijing, who said the only thing he couldn't understand about this was why Beijing was not below Shanghai. (laughs) So um, there clearly is, uh, and I actually draw quite a positive conclusion from this because uh, I think the one way of making financial sectors competitive is getting them to compete. Uh, And it's quite clear uh, that in China at the moment, there are three cities which are seriously interested in being global financial centres and are competing very extensively with each other. Uh, So the general outcome of this last couple of years from the point of view of China as an international financial market has been to improve its position quite sharp. That's not perhaps astonishing given what's happened elsewhere, so to some extent this is other people falling. But in fact, actually, on the measures, which is a very extensive survey of uh, which produces an index based on people's perception of ease of doing business of a lot of foreign firms, London's position has essentially not changed neither in relative nor in absolute terms which is slightly surprising and I wonder about it but nonetheless that's what the survey says whereas the Chinese position has improved but it's still the case that other surveys will tell you that uh, finance is still seen as a relative weakness for China this uh, spider diagram is taken from the World Economic Forum uh, which is a completely different uh, survey of companies um, asking them about how they perceive the operating environment in the different countries in which they um, operate. And I won't go around everything, but I think you can see market size, business sophistication, infrastructure, macroeconomic stability. And as you can see, China clearly uh, scores very highly on market size. That could be not so hugely surprising. And also, of course, on on, uh, uh, macroeconomic stability, and recently on health and primary education and on higher education. And the relative weaknesses are in uh, in finance uh, and and what they call technological readiness. So at the moment, um, if you ask firms, they will still say that they regard the Chinese financial sector as relatively poorly developed. And if you look below that spider diagram at some of the rankings in terms of you know, why, why China achieves the ranking it does, then foreign market size It's number one, i.e. the scale of its export markets. This is firms who are thinking perhaps of investing in China, so clearly the export markets from China are the, the, the largest. The domestic market is number two, after the US. Pay and productivity, China is very strong. Obviously, you can employ people really quite cheaply, and they work hard. Um, but... When you get down to some of the other figures, like regulation of securities exchanges, um, (coughs) China is 91 out of 133 countries. Uh, um, And that is not, I think, a place that China would really want to be. And I think that is quite significant in the context of what I said earlier about China's strategic objective of being to try to develop securities markets. But in fact, the perception of foreign firms is still that Chinese securities markets are risky places to be because they're not brilliantly regulated. And the, this is to do with the legal environment, generally to do with property rights, insider dealing, corporate governance, uh, which in China is poorly developed still. The concept of a genuinely independent director uh, is poorly developed, I think, in China. So this shows that in spite of what China has done on the banking side, And in spite of the fact that, in my view, although the stimulus has been pushed extensively through the banks, I don't share the economist view that there is a nasty bubble just around the corner. I think you would need to see two or three more years of this kind of activity before that would concern me. Nonetheless, uh, there are important signs that the market still is not regarded as Fully competitive and is still not ideally configured to support the rapid growth uh, that China has been experiencing. It's still very heavily dependent on bank lending, and we we have learned in this country that that's not a great place to be. So, moving then finally on to the uh, future challenges, well, one is, I think, a regulatory coordination in China. Uh, China has a system with three separate commissions, the Banking Commission, Securities Commission, and the Insurance Commission, and that made quite a lot of sense when these markets were divided. In other words, when the banks could do banking and securities firms could do securities, insurance companies could do insurance, and nobody could do two or three of these. But they have now allowed banks, for example, to invest in insurance companies, they're contemplating allowing them to invest in securities firms, and now the question of regulatory coordination and the compatibility of the different regulatory regimes is coming very much to the fore. Secondly, and I think I've said quite a bit about this, I think continued market opening to foreign firms uh, is still a problem. The Chinese have been very slow at doing this, and I think that it would benefit them Uh, to allow more competition for their domestic institutions. I think they accept that at a theoretical level, uh, but uh, have been really quite slow, uh, reflecting the political pressure, I think, and the political weight of the domestic banks uh, in allowing that to open. And I think also there are problems, and you see that reflected in these surveys, in people's perceptions of the regulatory system in China and the way in which it deals with domestic firms and foreign firms. The EU Chamber of Commerce in China produces a very good annual report now on the regulatory environment in China, actually not just in financial services. But they said very firmly this year that foreign firms are concerned the speed of reform is slowing down, that they face disadvantageous competition with their domestic peers because of unequal regulatory treatment. And I think that is something which ought to, and I think does, concern the Chinese authorities. So, my conclusions. China has so far steered the economy, I think, skillfully through the financial crisis. Undoubtedly, it acted extremely decisively in the fourth quarter of 2008, and the fears that one met when I went to China in uh, October 2008 and the authorities at that point were clearly very, very nervous indeed about the prospect for this year. And a very decisive fiscal action um, has uh, meant that that really bad outcome has not transpired. But the economy remains unbalanced. uh, Consumption remains uh, depressed. And it's not clear that a lot has been done in this fiscal stimulus to improve that. Now, of course, uh, there's a famous <coughs> Dixon, I can't remember who originally coined it in the United States, is that you can either spend money quickly or you can spend it well. And uh, it's very, very difficult to do both. And the Chinese <coughs> chose quick. Uh, and it's hard to disagree with that uh, given the risks that they saw to economic and indeed social stability at the end of 2008. Uh, So it's hard to disagree with the judgment that they should spend money quickly. Uh, But I think there is a powerful argument to say that over time this emphasis on infrastructure spending and a huge increase in investment again as opposed to spending more money on a social safety net which may encourage consumer confidence and encourage consumers to spend more uh, is probably misplaced. And ideally, one would want to see in the coming years the Chinese rebalance that support. Now I can see why if you really want to show some measurable impact on employment and activity, then getting giving people shovels and getting them to dig holes is actually a more reliable thing uh, than putting in place social security system and hoping that will make people feel confident and go outside. Uh, so I can understand this, uh, but I think that uh, they ought to be thinking about rebalancing this fiscal stimulus uh, now that the original fear of a meltdown has been removed. And I think that very rapid loan growth that we've seen through the banks could result in a revival of non-performing loans. Uh, and that that will be much more difficult to address in banks with overseas shareholders. It won't be so easy to hide these things because the accounts are prepared in a different way now and the overseas shareholders uh, don't want to see uh, the value of their assets disappear because of a politically directed lending program. So I think there are constraints (coughs) on the extent to which the Chinese can use the banks for this purpose and that's a good thing. And there are signs just in the last two or three months uh, that they have been tightening the screw and that having seen this huge surge in lending, uh, they are now anxious about the impact on asset prices and are seeking to rein that in. Uh, and finally there, I think that the challenges of broadening uh, the financial sector, enhancing uh, competition, do uh, remain and have not been completely uh, addressed. And indeed, uh, Liu Ming Kang, the chairman of the CBRC, uh, who's often quite uh, frank in his statement, said recently the banking institutions are finding themselves in a more violent environment with higher credit risk, market risk, and operational risk. And in this regard, we have much to do to enhance corporate governance, internal control, risk management, staff training, and supervisory expertise. Now, he adds in a Chinese way, nonetheless, we're confident we can do this. Uh, But uh, I think the fact that he insists on all of these things is not not without uh, significance. So, my absolute final conclusion is I think the Chinese authorities do remain committed to reform. Liu Ming Kang ends his recent annual report by saying we will further press ahead with the reforms of the banking sector. So I think that that is a clear statement and I believe it. I think they do remain committed to meeting global standards and indeed they're now directly involved in formulating them. But I do think that they are more convinced than ever as a result of this crisis that they should proceed at their own pace and in their own way. Um, And I think that the lesson that Chinese have learned is not that financial reform isn't necessary, that market opening isn't necessary, that generating a more commercial approach to credit isn't necessary, but nonetheless that adopting an off-the-shelf model whether it's from the US or from London, may not be the right way to go about it. So I think we will see further financial reform, but I think it will be Chinese financial reform. And the good news from my point of view is that I'm pretty sure there'll still be quite a lot to talk about in my sixth lecture next year. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right. thank you, Howard. So um, there you have it, a balanced, insightful, and an expert overview of the state of play of the Chinese economy and its financial system, not just relative to the global economy and the rest of the, the international financial system, but also insights into what's happening within the Chinese financial system, its landscape emerging, on bank deposits, on bonds and equity financing, and on its emerging openness relative to financial institutions from elsewhere in the world. We have some time for questions, if you will agree to to take them. Um, There are stewards in the audience, I believe, that have microphones, so is that correct? Excellent. So for those of you who do have questions, if you could put your hand up, and then wait until the microphone comes to you. And when you get the floor, please identify yourself and make your question concise and to the point. So questions please. Over here. Before. Thank you. I'm Zhang Hong with China's Caixin Magazine. And yesterday here in LSE, the World Bank Chief Economist Justin Lin was giving a lecture and he argued that um, if you take take into account China's development stage, the priority of China's financial reform should be put in developing local banks, which serve better for uh, uh, small and medium-sized companies because they uh, that's where a Chinese uh, comparative uh, advantage lies in. and But, but it seems to me, you, your view is that the China should put more pr- uh, priority into to, uh, developing bonds and uh, equity markets. So that seems a bit contradictory. So what's your comment on on this? Okay, excellent question. Let's take two, let's take three together and before Howard answers the, the set. So the woman just behind. Hi, uh, my name is Sophia, and uh, my question is that um, yeah. on the beginning of your um, presentation, there was um, a, a diagram about um, China's trade surplus, and how much um, China itself um, admitted, and how much other countries um, claimed that China actually lent to them. Um, my question uh, is not why, why do you think there's uh, this, um, such a difference And relating to this, um, how long the Chinese government can actually prevent decurrency uh, to be appreciated much more than it is. Mm. <coughs> and Then the woman in the green jungle and then we'll come back to some of the Thank you, Mr. Davis, for such a wonderful lecture. Uh, my name is Olga. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, you elaborate a little bit on uh, Chinese currency in the internationalization. If you could uh, explain a little bit more in the future, once they get RMB uh, sort of internationalized, what banking authorities would be able to uh, issue derivatives? from now on, would it be like few Chinese governmental banks or would another like public banks or international banks be able to trade Chinese currency? Thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, On the first question, yes, sadly I didn't hear uh, uh, Justin Yifu Lin uh, last night, but I did have dinner with him afterwards. (laughs) So we actually did discuss uh, uh, quite a few of the things he'd said in his lecture. Um, I think one of the, uh, I, I, I imagine that the point he was making about SMEs was that one feature of the recent lending that I mentioned was that most of it had gone to large SOEs and to large infrastructure projects. And the Chinese themselves are certainly anxious that the fact that it hasn't gone very much to SMEs which they had actually hoped they would find more SMEs who wanted to Borrow. I fear this is once again to do with the spending money quickly or spending money well, really. It, that you know, It is actually much more difficult to push money out if you're given a high priority uh, to lend in very small packets to individual uh, SMEs. So I understand his view on that, uh, that what they want to try to do is to reorient bank lending more towards the SME sector. Uh, but I don't personally think that's inconsistent with a simultaneous desire to try to ensure that the banks, that the stock and bond markets are better developed. And indeed, the two could be precisely in line because if the larger corporates are able to issue bonds more directly, you know, they take some pressure off that element of the bank lending channel, allowing the banks to do more in the SME sector. So I think, I think actually we... Well, I know from having talked to him over dinner, we do rather see this in the same, in the same way, actually. Uh, second point on the trade surplus. It's actually uh, quite stark, the difference in, in uh, the Chinese case between their reported figures and others. But curiously, um, this isn't completely unknown. Um, as Danny knows, Martin Wolf in the FT frequently says that the world has a trade deficit with itself, um, you know that if you add up all the trade numbers you never get to zero <laughs> that there is something very odd about figures and some of it's to do with pricing mechanisms some of it's to do with imports and re-imports uh, and, re- and exports and re-exports and it's extremely difficult to wash all these, these figures out I think the differences in relation to China are rather larger than in other places but you know, they, they do uh, often exist and indeed, these figures are frequently massively revised. You know, we've had occasions where we've had a sterling crisis in relation in the past, in the 670s, in relation to a trade deficit that turned out never to have existed. Um, you know, when it was revised out of existence five years later. Um, but uh, you're probably right uh, to ask me about uh, the Renminbi rate, and that's perhaps the elephant in the room. Um, though the way I typically prefer to approach this. I mean the the Americans spent quite a lot of time going to China and beating the Chinese up about the RMB and saying it must be allowed to rise. Um, My own view is that the better approach to this is to look at the shape of the Chinese economy and to try to encourage the Chinese to think that actually they would be less vulnerable as an economy if there were a better balanced economy as between net exports and domestic consumption and investment. But an economy that relies very very heavily on net exports and investment for demand is vulnerable in circumstances like we have recently had. And I think in the autumn of last year, the Chinese suddenly saw, gosh, you know, a, an export machine that is driving our economy along might just stall you know, seriously if the world economy has a heart attack, which it did. And I think they do now see that it would be advantageous to them in terms of stability, which I think is the number one priority for the Chinese authorities, to have a more balanced economy. I think if you have a more balanced economy, that naturally leads you uh, to lifting the exchange rate, actually. But it's a sort of a, I think it's better to see it the other way around. I think if you go and beat the Chinese up and say, allow the RMB to, to rise, you know, that tends to generate. A dysfunctional response, but if you talk about rebalancing the economy, one means to which and one consequence of which is likely to be a revaluation of the RMB, you know then that 's uh, a positively good thing actually we 've had quite a sizable revaluation of the RMB uh, against um, uh, the pound uh, you know it 's not long ago that when I went to China, it was fourteen, and now it 's what ten <coughs> is it. <laughs> You know, I can't afford to eat in China anymore. I mean, that's why we've got all these Chinese students, very wealthy Chinese students with their RMB over here. Uh, so I do think that, that the logic of, of the shape of the Chinese economy points to an increase in the exchange rate. Um, uh, Olga's question uh, about um, what uh, the banks and whether foreign banks will be allowed to deal uh, foreign exchange derivatives, etc. I guess my answer to that is I think yes, I think that will happen in the end uh, but it may take quite some time and I think the experience of reform shows that at the moment the Chinese are very concerned that institutions should prove definitively that they are able to handle new instruments uh, before they allow them to develop. Uh, and that's a kind of reversal of the presumption that we have typically had over here, which is, well, if a new instrument can be developed, then you should allow it, and then you see afterwards if people can manage the risks. Um, and I think maybe we've decided to change that presumption now as well. Uh, so I think that it's likely that they, the, the opening will apply to domestic banks first and the foreign banks somewhat later, but I think that's where they'll end up.
0: Okay, we'll come back to this section, but um, can we have some... Some questions from
1: here. So beginning in front and then proceeding upwards. Yes, uh, my name is Andre de Silva. You mentioned and appropriately about the question marks of rebalancing of the economy in China between the domestic and export, and quite a lot of that's been distorted by the extent of fiscal stimulus. But what about the impact you have mentioned in terms of commodities and, pr- and inflation? Uh, in the short term, it's arguable that uh, gold has uh, appreciated not just because of the inflationary hedge. Um, a weaker dollar, but also about short-term constraints on, like jewellery, cetera. That's on the consumption side. But on the medium term, on the more murky stuff, like uh, oil and, and iron ore, if there isn't a rebalancing, do we get the same bottlenecks as we got into this crisis that might emerge later? Can we take
0: a question from the middle? Um, I had a question. This was regarding, um, you know, one of the slides that you showed you hear me Yeah. Uh, this was regarding one of the slides in your presentation regarding the home purchases and um, you know the current homeowners and the intended homeowners is almost uh, you know the numbers actually just interchange you say that the number of people wanting to buy homes by mortgage go to fifty five percent till you actually see the two footnotes which uh, show you that the sample size is relatively low and and it also says that the respondents were allowed to give multiple answers. So I wanted to know how seriously do you um, think that there has been this attitudinal shift? Mm. Okay, there, were, there were two questions together. Is it okay if we take four in this? Room? Yeah, sure. So the two questions together from the two gentlemen in the middle on your slide on future challenges you mentioned regulatory coordination as one of the issues and indeed in the past year macroprudential regulation has been a hot topic among financial regulators we can see in the states their proposal to set up a Financial Services Oversight Council and in UK there are proposals to set up something like a council for financial stability so that the FSA, HM Treasury and the Bank of England can sit together regularly to discuss issues of common interest. Drawing from these experiences or references, how do you think China itself should strengthen macroprudential regulation in the coming decade? And I would also like to know if you have any comments on the idea for China to set up a super regulator like the UK so that the regulators would group together to be one single regulator to avoid those coordination problems. Thank you. Hi, my name is Stanley. And my question is on the last slide that you mentioned uh, the concern on the the depressed consumption. Because I think what China has done in uh, dealing with the financial crisis is because of the weakening um, export or People do not want to import Chinese goods. So what they do is to stimulate the local consumption, so as to boost the local economy. So, do you think that would be a concern for the China, or will that lead to long-term inflation or the uh,
1: another uh, price bubble on that? Yeah. Um, <coughs> well, let me try and be pretty quick because uh, it's it's five to eight. So, <laughs> um, on the first point on uh, commodities and the the risk there. Well. You know, I think at the moment, uh, in spite of the scale of the Chinese stimulus and uh, its impact on commodity markets, um, you know, the world economy overall is still quite depressed and there's still a a demand deficit uh, globally. So, at the moment, whilst it's possible to draw lines and say, well, if China carries on like this and this and this, you know, and then and paint yourself a horrific scenario. Um, I, I don't quite believe it because I think at the moment uh, there is still a sufficient weakness in confidence, a weakness in investment in the US and in Europe that I can't see commodity price inflation returning very quickly. Now, maybe I'm being over-optimistic, uh, but just at the moment, I, to me, that isn't the major, that isn't the major worry. Uh, On the consumer survey, yes, you're right to... uh, And um, you have very sharp, sharp eyes to read the footnotes. Uh, I did put them up, to be honest. Um, And it is a bit of a slightly shaky... I mean, have a look at it if you want. Um, But the reason I I, I referred to it um, was because, actually, consumer surveys in China uh, conducted, you know, by reasonably respectable overseas firms are quite in short supply, really. There's not much of it that's gone on. Um, And, uh, you know, a sample of 650, yes, it's not huge, but I think it's probably of some reasonable significance. And I looked at it, and it's a McKinsey piece of work on Chinese consumers. McKinsey has a very big office in China now, several offices in China. And so, yeah, the sample size is small, um, but I think it's a good, you know, it's an interesting attempt to get some sort of flavour of, of Chinese consumer attitudes, so I think it is of some, of some interest. Um, on the coordination of regulation point and the single regulator, <clears throat> when the Chinese uh, set up the three regulatory commissions, which were all, in a sense, born out of the people's <coughs> bank, they did say at the time that they uh, would consider bringing all of these together into one regulatory commission uh, in the future. Uh, and they linked that to the possible reform and the possible uh, removal of some of the rigid frontiers between the three sectors that they originally had. Um, my feeling is that uh, as the financial sector has grown rather sharply in China um, that you know there would be a, a concern um, in the in the highest ranks of the government about having one person in charge of the whole of the financial sector. So, now that's a slightly soft point, um, but I do think that the Chinese are concerned about concentration of power. They're also, they're concerned about corruption as well. And, you know, they think, well, maybe in one authority, one guy, you know, this is a very powerful, this is a very powerful man. Um, And, um, you know, I wonder whether they would be comfortable with merging all of these under one person. And certainly each time they've had a a financial conference, which they have every year, they've looked at this question and they've decided that now's not the time. (laughs) So I personally wouldn't expect that in the short term. Um, But I do think that the cooperation mechanisms are not as strong as they ought to be. Now if you ask this question, you get told, oh, well, the chairman of the three commissions and the uh, head of the People's Bank, we meet frequently with our minister now, Wang Shan, or Wang Zhu, as it was before. Um, uh, but what you get told by individual firms is that that might happen at the very top level, but that actually further down, there are lots of detailed rules that stumble over each other. Um, and, you know, you have uh, the banks... Um, C- the CBRC and the People's Bank saying we want to stimulate the equity market and then you have the CIRC preventing municipal pension funds from investing in equities and you say well how does that, how does that work? You know, so I think it's um, that they haven't really done the hard work of l- trying to find better coordination of all the sort of detailed rules that apply further down and so I think what's needed is not just a kind of grand group of people who meet and have lunch or breakfast quite frequently, which they do, um, but of trying to get that coordination more effectively planned between the uh, the three different uh, commissions. Um, lastly, on stimulating local uh, consumption and the risk of bubbles, well, I talked about this, but my point really, and perhaps I should have made this a bit more clearly, is that the nature of the fiscal stimulus has not been to stimulate domestic consumption in the consumer sense. It has been largely to deliver infrastructure projects and um, investment. Investment, and typically investment by large SOEs. So are, there is a risk, I think. what you've done is kind of rebuild uh, an export machine again um, which actually will not serve to rebalance now some of the infrastructure investment railways and this kind of thing is probably rather good I mean I think they did have quite a lot of shovel ready projects as they say you know where actually upgrading railway systems is good, it's good from an environmental point of view, emissions point of view and it probably is good from productivity point of view and an internal trade point of view and so that's probably quite good uh, but you know a lot of it I think has been to you know restore capacity or rebuild capacity among the large SOEs for exports and not sufficient of it has been likely to generate a rebalancing towards domestic consumption. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I, no, I appreciate that there are still questions, but I'm afraid that we are two minutes over the time limit. Even though I am sitting next to the most powerful individual at LSE, <laughs> we we still do have to keep to the time, and uh, I cannot let him. I cannot indulge him with more questions. So I have to call the evening to a close. But perhaps we can all you could all join me in thanking Howard for a most enlightening evening. <laughs>